Today we're going to be in two places. We're going to be in Hosea chapter 1. We're also going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Those are both uh, in your outline. So turn to those and kind of put a finger there. We'll actually start in Deuteronomy 30 and then we'll go to Hosea chapter 1. Before we start though, let me pray. Lord, we are a people much like the Israelites who often know your word and choose not to do it. We choose to sin and are in constant need of your forgiveness. We're in constant need of the reminder that you are God and we are not. But I'm thankful for the writers of the song, How Great Is Our God. Lord, truly you are a great God who loves us unconditionally, who loves us when we don't deserve it, So Lord, we ask that you would continue to love us, continue to forgive us. Lord, as we open your word today to see the failings of your people, we don't see your failings. We see that your people fail, but you remain faithful. Lord, we thank you that while we are faithless, that you continue to be faithful. Lord, show us your word for us today. Show us not only your word, but how it affects our life and how it ought to change our actions. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the Bible, we often see people who tell stories. Stories are a great way to communicate a truth. They're a great way to build into people's lives a reminder of something that is true. So we have people that tell stories like, the prophet Nathan tells David a story that leads David to recognize his own sin. Jesus uses parables. Jesus used the parable of the Good Samaritan to teach people to love their neighbors, especially their enemies. The book of Hosea is unique because while some people tell stories, some people tell stories about other lives, Hosea is unique because he tells a story as he's living the story. It's his story communicating God's truth, but he's the one living it. He's telling his own story so that we and the people of the day can learn from Hosea. The whole narrative part of Hosea starts in chapter 1. Chapter 2 is kind of devoid of much of Hosea, and then a little bit of chapter 3. There's not a whole lot of narrative events. Hosea doesn't give us a lot of details about his life. So I'm going to take a little bit of liberty and try to kind of fill in some of the gaps that could have been. So some liberty to put flesh on what otherwise is just the bones of the outline of Hosea's story. Hosea was a prophet of God. God's prophets almost universally brought the same message to God's people. The message was always, repent. Turn away from your sins and turn back to God. And Hosea was no different. And like most prophets, Hosea knew that when God speaks, man obeys. Hosea knew that only a fool would disobey God. So on this day, when God spoke to Hosea, Hosea knew that it was his job to obey, that God spoke and he was to obey. But when God spoke, these very words in the first chapter of Hosea, Hosea immediately knew that it was going to forever change the rest of his life. Hosea, like most people, had thoughts and dreams and plans, but God's word to him told him, your plans are changed. Your dreams are changed because what God says to him means that he will not have a faithful wife. Like everybody, before they get married, Hosea expected his wife to be faithful. But God's words to him were simple. Go and marry a woman of promiscuity and have children of promiscuity. 
words that would forever change Hosea. And if you can imagine being God's prophet, the word of God comes to you and says something that you did not expect. And Hosea was probably the same way. And after the shock and confusion wore off, Hosea got up and walked the dusty streets of the city. Hosea walked to a well-known alley. Hosea turned the corner of the alley. The alley was overshadowed by the buildings that hid the alley's dark secrets. Hosea knew this was no place for him to be. And as he walked, the staring of the men down the alley also told him, this is not a place for God's prophet to be. Everybody was certain of one thing, that the prophet of God should not be in an alley like this. And as Hosea walked down the alley, his head hung low. Every step, every passing stone, each memory, a memory of his passing and now fleeting pride. When Hosea gets to the end of the alley, the crowd is loud and rambunctious. And Hosea gets to the end and he looks up and he sees a woman. He locks eyes with her and her name is Gomer. And Hosea thinks to himself, this is fitting. Her name Gomer means the end, the end, the end of my pride, the end of me being a respectable prophet, the end of my dignity. And Hosea looks at Gomer and the people of the alley look at Hosea wondering what business does a man like Hosea have with a woman like that? Hosea, staring at Gomer, reaches out his hand and motions for Gomer to come. The crowd kind of starts to get silent because they all want that answer. What business does the prophet have with her? Hosea, or Gomer stands and she walks toward Hosea. He reaches out to take her by the hand. Hosea, holding the hand of Gomer, looks at her in the eye. And he says four words that don't belong in this scene. They don't belong in this alley. He says to Gomer, will you marry me? And the crowd loses it. They start laughing and jeering and pointing. Who wants to marry a prostitute? Just pay a little money and you can have her without any obligation. She can be yours or his or his or anyone's. What kind of mother will she make? She's never lived a domesticated lifestyle. Can she cook? Can she raise children? Why her? As the crowd laughs, Gomer thinks, what a horrible joke. And Hosea has played on me. She tries to pull her hand away, but Hosea holds on. The crowd, still laughing, looks at Hosea and he hasn't blinked. His eyes on Gomer the whole time. Gomer, having looked around and seeing people starting to settle back down, looks at Hosea, and she too knows this is not a joke, not to Hosea. So Hosea, still hand in hand with Gomer, repeats his question. Will you marry me?
and nervously, Gomer looks around one final time to see if the crowd is going to have advice for her. She looks back to Hosea, and nervously, she nods yes, confirming that she will marry him. The prophet and the prostitute, the unlikeliest of couples, hand in hand, step by step, walk out of the alley. Homer, Hosea, and Gomer would be married, and soon they would have a child. This child's name is Jezreel. To us, no significance, but to the people of the day, Jezreel meant judgment. Jezreel was a word that meant scattered. Like God's people, when they're disobedient to him, God would scatter them like a farmer tilling his field and then scattering the seed and just throwing it out there. But not only would the name mean to scatter, but God would also tell Hosea, as you name your son Jezreel, you'll also remember that the valley of Jezreel was a place of bloodshed, the place that Jehu deserved death, a wicked king. Your name, your son, judgment, because, God says, my people will be judged. Hosea and Gomer have another child, and she conceives. But Hosea looks at this child, and he has some doubts. This child doesn't look the same as Jezreel. And God's word to Hosea comes again, and God says, name your second child, a daughter, Name her Loruhama, which means no compassion. Because God says, I will not have compassion on these faithless people. A third time, Gomer conceives. Hosea's mind is racing with all kinds of thoughts about if he's the father. God says again to Hosea, the name for this child will be Lo-Ami, which means not my people. Because God says, you will not be my people and I will not be your God. God is using Hosea as a walking metaphor for judgment. God says to Hosea, you will play the part of the faithful God. And Gomer, your faithless wife, will play the part of my faithless people. They will be judged. They will not receive compassion and they will not be my people. The reason that God is going to judge these people is because God had a covenant with these people. That's where Deuteronomy 30 comes in. God had a covenant, and a covenant is more than a promise. It's a legally binding contract. Let's look at Deuteronomy 30 to see the contract, the covenant that God had made with these people. Deuteronomy 30, starting in verse 11. God says, this command that I give you today is certainly not too difficult or beyond your reach. God is telling these people here, this is something you can do. This covenant that I'm making with you is something that you can do. It's not too difficult. It's not beyond your reach. And he gives them two examples. 12, it's not in heaven so that you have to ask, who will go up to heaven and get it for us and proclaim it to us so that we may follow it. The command is not so difficult that someone has to ascend to heaven to bring it down to us. Also, it's not across the sea so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea to get it for us and proclaim it to us so that we may follow it? But 
the message is very near you in your mouth and in your heart so that you may follow it. God has told them this message, this command, this covenant that I'm going to give you, it's right here. It's not too hard. It's not too far away. It's not too difficult for you. You can do this. See verse 15, today I have set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity. For I am commanding you today, here's the covenant. I'm commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commands his statutes and ordinances so that you may live and multiply and the Lord your God may bless you in the land you are entering to possess. It's not too hard. It's not too far away. It's not unintelligible. You can do this. You can understand this. It's right here. God's command to them, obey and follow the ordinances, the statutes and the commands, and walk in God's ways. And here's where the covenant part comes in. Verse 17, but if your heart turns away and you do not listen, and you are led astray to bow and worship to other gods and to serve them, I tell you today that you will certainly perish and will not prolong your days in the land you are entering to possess across the Jordan. It's simple. I set before you life and prosperity. I set before you death and adversity. You walk in my ways. You follow my commands, my ordinances, and my statutes, and I'll give you everything. But if you choose not to follow, you'll lose it all. Listen to verse 19. You can hear the seriousness through the words, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today. I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. It's almost as if God begs them, choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Love the Lord your God, obey him and remain faithful to him for he is your life. God had told them, I will give you everything, anything you need, a land flowing with milk and honey, fertile ground, endless springs and rivers, everything you need. I'll protect you from your enemies. You'll have no hardship. I will give you every blessing of heaven if you just obey. And if you don't obey, I'm taking it all away. You'll be known as people who were faithless to a faithful God. You're going to meet the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They're going to capture you and conquer you and take your sons and daughters and take your women and take your land. All the blessings that I promised will be theirs if you don't walk in my ways. This covenant that God had given them was what's called a bilateral covenant. Bi meaning two. It required God to uphold his side of the bargain, and it required the Israelites to uphold their side of the bargain. If God upholds his side of the bargain, if God upholds and does what he said he will do, then the Israelites are required to do their part of it. And if one of them is no longer faithful to the covenant, the other one can abandon the covenant. The purpose of this covenant was to show us that nobody is righteous. God's very own people, hearing God's word, hearing God's voice, faithless. Because nobody is righteous. Nobody can uphold a bilateral, conditional covenant with God. Nobody is righteous. So from here in Deuteronomy, 700 years pass and Hosea starts speaking. 700 years of disobedience and Hosea 
comes on the scene to remind the people, you have failed God. You have been faithless when God is faithful. You have not upheld your side of the covenant. During those 700 years, the Israelite people were deeply intertwined with God. Their lives were all focused on God in some way, either listening and obeying and worshiping or doing exactly the opposite of what he told them to do. Their life was focused in and around their obedience and disobedience of God. One of the primary ways that God spoke to his people was through prophets, a prophet like Hosea. A prophet in Hebrew means someone who is called by God. The prophet was simply a middleman. The prophet was to take God's word from God's mouth to God's people. God would give his word to the prophet and the prophet would give God's word to God's people. He would stand in the gap between these two groups, God and his people. And many prophets, Hosea included, gave words from God that were harsh. They were words of rebuke. They were words of condemnation. You can imagine the people didn't favor the prophets very often. A prophet giving them the words of God which were negative, which were not blessing, which were not hopeful. Because the faithless people needed the rebuke from God. So the prophet would often be the person that they would take it out on. The prophet was himself rebuked, himself persecuted, and often even faced death simply by taking the word of God to the people of God. This Old Testament covenant, this old covenant that God had given the people, if you obey, if you do what I say, if you walk in my ways, if you take everything that I'm giving you and just obey, this covenant that God had given them, showed that they would never be able to do that, that they would never be able to fulfill this. And much of the Old Testament does the same thing. The prophet was simply a man. They could look at men like Hosea and say, really, you're telling us what to do? I know that you know where that alley's at. Look at your wife. Who are you to speak for God? The people of the Old Testament, they wanted a king. All of our Friends around us have kings. Our enemies have kings. Everybody has a king. And what do we have? We have a God, but he's not here. We want a king. They had sacrifices. They had sacrifices that they had to repeat over and over. They could not keep the perfect covenant. The king could not be perfect he would take their children as soldiers. He would take their land. He would take them and tax everything that they had. The prophet was imperfect as well. Going all the way back to their great-great-great-grandfather, Adam, the first man who walked with God, failed. See, all of these things, the covenant, the lamb, the sacrifices, the kings, the prophets, all of these things that the old covenant represented showed that they could not do what God had called them to do. All of these things were imperfect. Every single one of them pointed to the need for something better. It pointed to the need for something perfect. The manna that fell from heaven had to be gathered and it spoiled. The shepherd that represented God at some point had to eat his sheep. Everything in Israelite life said, you are not perfect people, you are not righteous, you cannot uphold the standards of God, and you need something more. The whole of the Old Testament points to the need for Jesus. 
The whole of the Old Testament says, you're not perfect. You can't keep the covenant. You kill and eat your sheep. Your kings are going to betray you. But there's a king that's coming that's perfect. There's a perfect shepherd, a perfect sacrifice, a perfect covenant. The Old Testament all points, and Hosea is no different. He says, there's one coming that will be able to uphold this covenant. And that's the one that we wait for. See, Hosea wrote his, his book over 40 years. Those kings that are listed in verse 1 span 40 years. Hosea told people for 40 years, you can't do it. You have failed God. You will continue to fail God. The names of his son, Jezreel, judgment for failure. The name of his daughter, no compassion, no compassion because of your failure. The third child, the son, Loami, you're not my people because you've betrayed me. You've broken the covenant. Even those names show that they were never going to be able to do what God had called them to do. But if you know anything of God, that's not where the story ends. The story of Hosea is not a story of judgment. Because God says, even though Jezreel is a valley of bloodshed, verse 3, on the house of Jehu, that verse 11 says, those who have been scattered, the Judeans and the Israelites, they will be gathered together. They will appoint for themselves a single ruler who will go up from the land, for the day of Jezreel will be great. You see, God has taken what was a curse, the name Jezreel, but God promises that that name will be transformed into a blessing. That out of these scattered, disobedient, faithless people will come a single ruler, and the day of Jezreel will be great. Immediately for lo Ruhamah, for I will have no compassion, verse 6, verse 7, but I will have compassion. We see compassion now looking back on all of this. We see compassion in the cross. Because we too are a faithless people. We too wander away like the Israelites. Like, I'd love to tell you like, those Israelites, horrible people. I'm going to be way over here because I'm not like those people. I'm these people. I walk from God. I wander from God. God says, do this. And I say, I had other plans. I had a difference of opinion with God. I don't see things your way. You don't see things my way. And we sin and we wander from God. But you see, at the cross, God showed his compassion God showed his compassion by sending Christ, and Christ showed the compassion of being willing to suffer for us, taking our sins upon himself. Everything that we've done that is wicked and evil, just like the old covenant, no thanks. I like those people around me that you said not to do what they're doing and not to be self-indulgent like they are. Eh, they're my neighbors. What's one time? God says, but I will have compassion. The compassion of the cross is for us. The example of the compassion of Christ is for us to give to others. To be like Christ means to do what Christ did. Jesus on the cross had compassion. He gave undeserving Jezreels who deserved judgment, undeserving people, a second chance. He said to you, you don't deserve forgiveness. You don't deserve compassion. But I'm going to give you compassion anyways, although you don't deserve it. 
We like that. I like that. I like that God has given me compassion. I don't want to give that to other people, though. I don't want to give second chances to people that don't deserve it. I gave you a chance. You blew it. I knew you would be like that. But on the cross, Christ said, you have a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and an unending amount of forgiveness and compassion showed to us that we might be like Christ and show an unending amount of compassion and forgiveness for people that are lost and they don't deserve it at all. And I know that because I don't deserve it at all. Lo Ami, of these three names is my favorite. Lo Ami, you are not my people and I will not be your God. Verse 10, the redefinition of the name Lo Ami Yet the number of the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or counted. And in the place where they were told, you are not my people. The place where they were told, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. See, God has told these wicked, faithless people, I'm not your God and you're not my people. But then he's redefined their name. He's given them a new name that is no longer not my people. But listen, it's not just he's going to bring them back and say, okay, but now you're my people again. Instead, he's taken it so much further and said, but they will be called sons. It's not just that you will be God's people, you'll be God's family, that you'll be God's kin, that you will be sons and daughters of the living God. A faithless people under the old covenant, redefined as God's faithfulness applied to his sons and daughters. Because under the new covenant in Christ's blood, we're no more faithful than we ever were. We're no more faithful than the Israelites were. It's just that this covenant does not go two ways anymore. The new covenant in Christ's blood is applied directly to us. It's not our participation in the sacrifice of Christ that makes him faithful. He remains faithful. Faithful, though we be faithless. This new covenant is unilateral. It goes one way from the cross to your sin. And if you are faithless, God is faithful. That's what makes the new covenant in Christ's blood. It's unconditional. But like compassion, we like to look at other people and say, yes, God has given me unconditional love and I will love you if you love me. I will do for you if you will do for me. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You're good to me, I'll be good to you. And we want to take the unconditional love of God, and then go back to the old covenant and say, but my relationships with other people will be conditional. No longer will I live in unconditional love and forgiveness towards God's people, but I will hold a grudge because of what that person has done. I will not be forgiving because of them. It's not me, it's really them. That person needs to have forgiveness. That person needs to have compassion. And we take what God has made in the new covenant, 
unconditional love for us. And we say, but I still live over here with this bilateral condition of love for God's people. And there's some of them I really love and some of them that don't love me and so they don't deserve love. They don't deserve kindness because they don't give kindness. They're mean to other people and so they deserve what they get. And what they get from me, well, what they get is what they get. It's easy to receive compassion from God and not be compassionate to others. It's easy to receive unconditional forgiveness, but not give unconditional forgiveness. You know, what's in a name? I think of names, we give names to our children. Sometimes it's a name we like, or maybe it's a, a childhood name that we knew somebody, or it's a family name. This is your great-great-grandmother's name. Maybe it's a biblical name. Yeah, I, I really like this character in the Bible, or I like what God has done in this person's life, and we read in the Bible, and so that's the name that I'm going to give you. In Romans 11, Paul talks about this idea of us being like a branch that's been cut from a tree and thrown out in a field. This branch is just out there. It's dying, it's withering, the leaves are shriveling, the branch is desiccating. And what Paul says is, picture this, you've got this branch that's dead, and then that branch is picked up. And somebody brings it back. And it's not dead yet. And a farmer goes and he takes it and he cuts a, a smooth, clean cut on the end of the branch. And then he takes a healthy and perfect tree that's roots are deep and its trunk is wide and it's as healthy as can be. Nothing can kill this strong tree. And Paul says, and imagine the farmer, he takes this dead and dying branch and he's going to graft it into this tree. But to graft it into the tree, the branch has to be cut, but the tree has to be cut. You can't graft a tree right onto the bark. The tree has to be cut. The tree has to bleed. The tree has to suffer that we might be grafted in. Paul says that's how Christ is for us. That we were dead and dying and we were brought in and we were grafted in as sons and daughters of the living God. So what's in a name? In Hosea, God's all about redefining and transforming what was into what is. But if you go home and you look in the mirror, and you literally just look in the mirror, what name would you give yourself? What name would you give yourself? For a lot of people, they would look in the mirror and they would see their past mistakes. They would look and they would see their sin. For some people, it's a moment of regret that you would give anything to be able to go back to that one moment in your life and have that changed. If you were to take some lipstick on the counter and write your name on the mirror, what would you write? What would other people write? If we looked at you, if other people looked at you, what would they write? What would their name be for you? The most important question, though, is what is God's name for you? What is God's name for you? 
We all look back on our lives and the sin and the regret and the mistakes and the things we wish wouldn't have been. We look back and we see Jezreel. We see Lo Ruhamah. We see Lo Ami. God says, that's what was. But this is what is. That you once were not my people, but now you are sons and daughters of the living God. Paul says it this way. Therefore, in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is, a new, is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. It's dead and it's gone, and the new has come. And it's almost like Paul adds that, and see, like he's telling, us, he's telling the Corinthians, look in the mirror, because if you can't actually see it, there's something wrong. Look in the mirror, because you should see that all of those things Christ has paid for on the cross, all of those past things are dead and they've gone, because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old, which was, has been given a new name. The new name is sons and daughters of God. The new name is Christian. The lipstick in the mirror does not define who we are. It defines who we were. And Hosea is saying, these faithless people of God will be given a new name. God will redeem because God is faithful. They are no more faithful than we are. We are on this side of the cross, having looked back into the past. For us, God has reached down into the depths of our sin, reached down into our own depravity, reached down into our past and our mistakes, and he's pulled us up like he did Peter out of the water. You are new. It's why we baptize people. It's a picture of you once were, but now you are new. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. And therefore, therefore, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If all of what I've said is true, that we once were, that we're no more faithful than the Israelites on the other side of the old covenant, if all of that is true and we are a new creation in Christ and the old is dead and the old is passed away and we can see clearly that God has made us new creations because of the blood of Christ on the cross and giving us a new covenant, if all of that is true, then therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's no longer about me because God is saying, if you walk in my ways, if you obey my ordinances, my statutes, and my commands, if you just do what I say, you're living in Christ. The old has gone and the new has come. I want to take this back to Hosea now. So if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Hosea 1.1 is the history of the time. Here's all the king's names. Here's all the people that were alive during this time. It gives some historical context and a timeline. Okay, verse 2, Hosea 1, 2, is just all bad news. It's just horrible. You're going to marry a woman of promiscuity and have children of promiscuity because the people are like a prostitute. I was faithful to them and they broke the covenant and they walked away. They are faithless people. So Hosea, you are going to live a horrible life because you represent me and my people have sinned against me. But if Hosea was here and Hosea said, it's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. The first three words of verse three is exactly what he would do. After having this horrible news delivered to him, 
you're going to marry a woman of promiscuity. She's going to continue to be promiscuous and have children of promiscuity. Look at what Hosea does in chapter 1, verse 3. So he went. Hosea doesn't stop and say, okay, God, I think I misunderstood. Because you said, I'll be your prophet. You'll give me your words. And then we'll all be okay. You'll give me good words. I'll give them to your people and it'll be all fine. Hosea doesn't try to rationalize. He doesn't try to figure out what God meant underneath the words. Well, maybe it's metaphorical. Maybe the whole book of Hosea is metaphorical. Maybe God didn't really mean. Did God really say? So he went. Hosea heard God's word. Hosea obeyed. Hosea didn't try to figure out a workaround for God's word. So he went. Now the reason I selected Hosea for us to go through I read Hosea a few different times. And as I was reading, I kept going back to Hosea, the hero. What an awesome guy. God said, I'm going to deal you the worst hand. It's horrible. And Hosea's like, all right, I got it. I hear you. Okay, so I went. Just going to do it. And I read through and I kept thinking like, Man, if God calls me to somewhere horrible, let it be said of me, so I went. If God says, hey, I've got all of these bad things in your life, may I remain faithful? And they said, so he went. Right, amen that we would be people of, so he went. If I can be honest with you, that was all my pride. Because the more I read Hosea, the less I realized that I was the hero And I was the woman of promiscuity. I was the woman who was faithless to God and needed the new covenant. I was no better than the Israelites who said, yes, we will obey you. May it be on us and our children if we don't obey you. And then they disobeyed. And as I read Hosea with that in mind, it was no longer Me, the the hero of Hosea, but it was the hope of Hosea that God, even in their wandering, literally the next verse, that I will have compassion, but you will be my people. The day of Jezreel will be great. A single king will rise up from among them. That's the hope that we have in Hosea because we're not the hero. If there's a story that we're the hero, We've told the story wrong. Because the only hero here is the one through whom the new covenant is made possible. The only hero is Christ who has redeemed wicked people out of their wickedness. That's walked that alley, that's made eye contact, that said, will you marry me? That said to a prostitute, you are living a life of depravity. Hosea's name name even means salvation. Salvation goes to the end and redeems the end. It's a whole picture of Jesus. God often does his most meaningful work in the most unlikely situations. And you may be thinking that you can relate to Hosea because the hand that you've been dealt, the things that you've had to go through, the things that you've had to endure that weren't your fault, the things that have happened are like what God tells Hosea in verse 2. I've got bad things, and I've got more bad things, and your life is going to be a picture of those bad things. 
but God does meaningful work in the unlikeliest of situations. In the whole of Hosea's life, his life was a mess. His wife was a mess. But the one thing that Hosea did was constantly point back to a God whose life was not a mess. A God who was perfect. A God who could redeem. A God who, though these people deserve judgment, always offers them a way of redemption. These first three chapters are Hosea's life. Four through 13 are all the judgment that they're going to get. 14 is the story of this is how you are redeemed. This is how God's promises play out. So in the midst of a Hosea-like life, does your life point to Christ? Do you say to others, yes, all of this has happened, but by the grace of God, he has given me hope that transcends all of the things that I've dealt with a hope that goes so far beyond my old name, a hope that goes and knows for certain that I am not who I once was because in Christ, I am a new creation. See, the old covenant was impossible to keep. The new covenant is impossible to lose. When Christ gave his life on the cross for us. All of the prophecies that had been pointing to the need for a perfect covenant, a perfect priest, a perfect king, a perfect prophet, a perfect Adam, a perfect sacrifice, a perfect shepherd, all of that was redeemed and made true. It came to fulfillment in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful that you have given us the book of Hosea to see how you, a perfect God, are willing to redeem an imperfect people. Lord, if it weren't for Paul, I would count myself the foremost of sinners. Lord, I pray that we would not only see the sin, but we would know that there is a new creation in us, that you have redeemed us, that you have called us. And Lord, may our lives reflect that. May our lives reflect the hope of the new covenant, the hope that we no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in us. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word, that you've given us the ability to understand you. Or the picture of Hosea and his immediate obedience so many good things to learn from your prophet who is committed to you. Or may people look back on our lives and say the same thing of us, that we have been transformed, that we have been given a new name, that the new covenant in the blood of Christ has covered all of our sins. And not only that, but may that be the one thing that we know. As Paul says, I have vowed to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. May that be the testimony of our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.